0: We come to the rest of the verse uh, we started last week, as we have just really gotten a good foothold into the book of First Peter. A letter written to the chosen ones, uh, the pilgrims he describes them, uh, of the dispersion. Particularly in Asia Minor and up into Asia proper, Uh, But we have that region that we often see a lot of Scripture addressed to. Uh, A lot of the epistles as well as the book of Revelation focus on this area. And as the believers were scattered throughout there, whether they be uh, scattered out of Jerusalem through the persecution that was instigated largely by Saul, uh, or other dispersions that happened later on in uh, the Jewish community and then ultimately uh, with the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, great dispersion that happened uh, during the time of, of uh, Cestius's assault on Jerusalem in between that and Titus's assault. And so we find that uh, there's a great scattering, and this is one of the means by which God had the gospel go forth throughout the region. And Peter, as one of the leaders in the church and by, Instruction from Jesus Christ takes on this responsibility of writing to them. And he wants to begin by talking about the foundation of his themes. His themes that we're going to be looking at, we've already discussed three main themes, and the first one that we're going to really delve into is the theme of obedience. And it's right away in the introductory comments about who they are, and as a definition of what does it mean to be one of the called ones, one of the pilgrims, Uh, of Jesus Christ, of the church, uh, and to identify ourselves in relationship to the triune God. And this Peter wants to do, to lay that foundation. This is how we define ourselves. It is not in terms of earthly things, but rather of the divine that defines the church and each individual in it. And so we are individually and corporate as a group Uh, We are the body of Christ, and we are defined by that. It is how we describe ourselves. And when we engage people, uh, they want to find out who you are, what you're like. Uh, If they're a group of men, they'll usually ask you, what do you do for a living? Uh, They'll ask you some of your hobbies, your favorite sports teams, things like that, trying to figure out who you are. But we know that all that is really irrelevant, because what we do for a living changes over our time. And our favorite sports teams now have all very greatly disappointed us at one time or another, and they've all disappointed us at this point, I, I think, uh, in my opinion, and, and it's not relevant. It's not relevant. My day isn't made or lost by whether they won or lost. Uh, it is uh, all these things that we try to define ourselves, and of course, in our era, we are trying to define people uh, by their political stance, uh, liberal or conservative, uh, by uh, gender, by their orientation in, in uh, sexual orientation, uh, by all these things we're trying to define people. And really we come up onto the table with a very different perspective. Our perspective is we are defined not by anything of this earth. We are defined by divine aspects. And so we are defined here as the elect, the pilgrims, Uh, The saints is going to be a term we're going to be looking at today as well, although it's not necessarily in our text immediately before us. But we are the blessed of the Father, and therefore we are members of his kingdom. We are going to be described later on in Peter in numerous descriptive phrases or terms to set us aside. And this is the key to understanding the next part of verse 2 is that we are set apart we are distinctly different and it should be evident to everyone around us that distinction and rather than trying to downplay it we should be embracing that and promoting the distinction of who we are that we are defined by a relationship not between people I'm not defining myself as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a uh, grandfather, i, I do not as a pastor. That's not how I define myself, but it is the relationship ultimately that I have with God that defines me. Who am I? And it influences every aspect of who I am. It sets it apart. And now in all these other relationships, I can glorify God because I have this relationship correct. In all these other aspects of my life, I can seek to glorify God because I have that divine aspect correct and this is the foundation peter wants to lead with to direct these pilgrims to what it means to walk in obedience and we looked at the foreknowledge of god of knowing ahead of of the father god the father last week and we discussed that and the abuse that has been made toward that and i'd like to in in bringing us into the rest of this, lay out a imagery for you, an an illustration, and every illustration has its limitations. And Christ uses illustrations extensively in his teaching uh, and parabolic teaching. Uh, And so I want to lay out an illustration to help us grasp what is going on here when we talk about foreknowledge. And now we're going to talk about sanctification, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, in our calling for obedience. And remember, the calling isn't for salvation. The calling is for obedience. If we diagram the sentence out, we see the purpose of our calling is for obedience. And so the illustration I want to use is a train. Uh, the The whole setting. And I want you to think of 1 Peter as being written to a group of people who are already on a train. And the Father, God the Father, laid the tracks long, long, long time ago. The tracks had to be laid out. The ground had to be leveled. And all the, all the <laughs> every one of those railroad ties had to be put down. And those rails at just the right space were laid out. And there it is, the way through the foreknowledge of God. He knew what was going to be required for you to be called to obedience He knew what it was going to take. It was going to take the sacrifice of his son on Calvary's cross, the resurrection uh, by the Father's hand, and the ascension. It's going to take all that. God knew all of that long ago. And he laid out the track all the way from start to finish. You don't start laying out a track unless you know where it's going to go. God knew the destination from the beginning. And he laid that track out We have some excellent illustrations of track laying in our country. Uh, I don't know how many of you like that kind of history, but uh, I often wondered, is the golden spike still there? How many of you know what the golden spike is? All right, you've heard of it. Uh, Some of you know what it is. Uh, They started laying track out. They started laying track out in California, and they started laying track out, I think it's St. Louis or somewhere like that. And they started going towards each other. And they met together. And now we have a transcontinental railroad. And that last spike was a gold one. The golden spike. That now one coast is tied to the other coast by a laid out track. What you don't probably know is that the surveying for that track all had to be done before they started at either end. (laughs) Or they wouldn't have lined up to each other. There had to be foreplanning, foreknowledge to lay out this track. And so we are elect by the foreknowledge, the pre-planning of God, laying out every step of what it's going to take for us to go from being sinners to saints, to being, to being in rebellion, to being in submission. And that is that plan of sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the giving of the law, all of it. And thus we're going to see this reinforced later on in Peter when he's going to talk about uh, foreknowledge with regard to his determination. We saw last week in Peter's sermon at Pentecost uh, about Jesus Christ. God knew that he was going to have to send his son. And so through his foreknowledge, we have the way, the track laid. Was it laid today? No. Are we riding on it today? Yes. But the track was laid long ago. And we're in the train, and today we're going to talk about the conduit. So, so the, the track or the conduit is the four of the Father, but now we're going to talk about the vehicle, the vehicle itself. And that is described as in the sanctification of the Spirit. And that's our next phrase here in First Peter 1, verse 2, in sanctification of the Spirit. And that word sanctification is usually linked to the concept of being saints or holy ones, but it really means to be set apart. That we are distinct from. We are in this uh, train car. So I'm going to compare sanctification to the car of the train that you're riding in. And I want you to remind you, you're in the train. You are riding on the tracks that were laid down long ago by the Father, but you are riding in in a car Described as the sanctification of the Spirit. That it is the vehicle by which we are able to fulfill our calling for obedience. He sets us apart. He seals us. He is abiding with us that we might be obedient. It is the vehicle. It is the, is the device by which we are transported from being sinners to acting like saints. That we have already been made by, Jesus, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is the vehicle by which God carries us into this idea of obedience, so we'll become more and more obedient. And so there we are, riding in it. You say, well, that's a pretty passive position for us, and you're correct that riding in a train car is a pretty passive thing, and yet we recognize, hopefully, that we are not inactive there. But it is not us making ourselves sanctified It is us being carried along in sanctification by the Holy Spirit. But it does not mean that we have no cooperative requirement. But I do want to address one misconception, using my same illustration. Peter is not writing this at the train depot, saying, all of you that are elect, get on the train. You see, in the realm of evangelism, it doesn't work. Because God calls all men everywhere to obedience. Calls all men everywhere to repentance. Invites all to salvation. It's so much like the conductor that leans out, all aboard. That's the invitation. Everybody get on. That would be an evangelistic declaration. That's not what Peter is writing. He's not writing to the lost. He's not writing to unbelievers, inviting them to salvation. And so these terms are referring to those who already have accepted it. And now they are riding in the train. And these are his admonitions to those who are on the train. Who chose at the depot when it called out, all aboard, get on the train. They make that choice to receive the offer of salvation. We're not talking about salvation in this verse. We're talking about the Christian's call, invitation, choosing for obedience. You've been chosen for obedience. God desires everyone that gets on the train live an obedient life. Now that requires something of the person riding on the train, and that's what Peter really wants to focus in on. But today, theologically, we're looking at the the vehicle itself. The vehicle itself is the Holy Spirit. What do you have to do in response to the Holy Spirit? Um, (laughs) Don't resist Him. Don't quench Him. But rather, be filled with Him, we are told, to walk with Him. Don't sit there and fight against the Holy Spirit. That's your response. we read through God's Word, we are, we are told that the Spirit will do these things because it's the promise of God. The Father is sent by the Son. He will do the work. He is faithful. He is God. He will be consistent, but He will not overrun your will. And so it is certain that some will get on the train at the depot, and but will live unruly within the car and sometimes to a degree that they have to be removed. Now, that's a frightening proposition I just threw out there. You say, Pastor, that says you don't believe in eternal security. I do. Once you live ruly, (laughs) ruly, according to the rules, instead of unruly on the train. We recognize the danger of, in any kind of transportation, whether it's a car, plane, train, bus, of unruliness inside the vehicle while it's moving. It has inherent dangers. And so it is for the Christian. While we look like we are passive in this vehicle called the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, we have a responsibility to live obediently, to be cooperative with the vehicle itself and its purpose and its destination, lest we be removed from that vehicle. The sanctification of the Spirit becomes the mechanism that moves us along in God's plan towards our destination. The destination certainly is full sanctification. That is that we are completely holy in our experience. What is the difference between sanctification and justification? Let's talk about that for a moment because that's the difference between the the train depot and the tracks being in the vehicle. Justification is, is that we are declared righteous. It is a judicial statement saying that, that we have no longer going to consider you a sinner. You're going to enter in and now in this relationship with God, you are cleansed of all your sin. You are now a holy one, a separated one, a one who is made righteous because you have been inherited righteousness from Jesus Christ. And so that is justification And that is a a divine act that you are completely the passive recipient of. Only he can justify you, you cannot justify yourself. When we try to justify ourselves, what happens? We are being an affront to God. Because when we justify ourselves, we are never repentant, are we? When you hear people being confronted with their sin and they try to justify themselves, you know that they are not going to repent of that in that condition. But when someone comes and pleads for mercy, when someone comes, I'm guilty, forgive me, I'm sorry, I'm weak, I'm, I, I'm, I'm whatever, and I, and I fall on my knees, I beg for your mercy, a judge can now justify you and say, I declare you not guilty. Not that you aren't guilty, but I'm going to declare you not guilty. And this is the work of God the judge. Sanctification, which is also attributed here to God, but God the Spirit, is the bringing your position into your experience. That you are set apart in your living that it is, it is an ongoing process of becoming more and more saintly in your speech, in your attitudes, in your behavior, uh, that you are going to uh, progress toward what you've been declared. You've been declared not guilty. Now we're going to start acting like we're not guilty by being righteous. And that is that process of sanctification becoming more and more set apart, more distinct, more holy. And this should be the activity of every Christian, and it should be the activity of the church. You would think that the church, with with nearly 2,000 years of practice, would really know how to be not-worldly. But we really find the opposite, don't we? The world has become consistently more and more-worldly. That if someone came here from 100 years ago, uh, from 1920, and walked in a church says, what are you people doing? You call this church, look at you people. They wouldn't even have to listen to my sermon. They would be disturbed just by coming in the room. Yeah, this isn't Church. And so when we look at this, we can see how we have moved consistently. Uh, Oh, I agree, we're about 15 to 20 years maybe behind the the world, but that's not being set apart. We're supposed to be more and more godly as we go along this travel, along these tracks, in this vehicle called sanctification. We're supposed to be looking, there should be a wider wider and wider and wider and wider gap between us and the world because we're traveling in this vehicle called sanctification, away from where we were. And so as the longer I'm a believer, the less I should look like the world. The less it, its speech and its and its attitudes, the less its behaviors and actions it influence me and define me. That's who I was, that's not who I am today. And that's one of the reasons why, one of the qualifications of, of a elder bishop pastor is that he not be young a novice in the faith why because he's just too close he hasn't traveled in this vehicle called sanctification quite long enough to distinguish himself from the world to the christian life where he's supposed to be an example to the believers and paul tells timothy be an example and don't anyone despise your youthfulness because you've been following me for years Timothy had been Paul's protege for for maybe even a dozen years before he was cut loose to go out and minister on his own. But in Paul's eyes, he was young. And and now I understand that. I didn't understand that before. I thought, well, if Timothy was young, he must have been like a 20-year-old. But now that I'm almost 60, uh, some of you 40-year-olds are looking pretty young. Okay, You're looking pretty youthful to me. Uh, I say, you young people. You know, and and I can, you know, to me, Casey is still a young person. She thinks she's middle-aged or something, but not to me, because I'm middle-aged. Right? No. (laughs) I've been telling people I'm old. All right? And so he says to Timothy, don't anyone despise your youth, um, but be an example to the believers. In what? In your whole life. Sanctification demonstrate to the world that you are on a track that God laid in a vehicle provided by God that is distancing you from where you used to be. That's who I used to be. I've come a long, long ways from there in the practices of my life. Doesn't mean I've completely arrived at my destination. Some of those things from old life still crop up now and again and I want to squash them. And that's what 1 John 1, 9 is all about. Also written to people on the train. Confess your sins. He's faithful to us. Forgive you your sins. We're going to talk about that when we get to the sprinkling of the blood of Christ here shortly. And so this is the vehicle that we are traveling. The tracks of God's foreknowledge laid down and we are traveling in the sanctification, the set-apartness that the Spirit enables us for he is the power by which we are able to have a living victory over sin that its presence in our lives diminishes as we submit ourselves further and further and further to this Holy Spirit's work when he convicts I'm responsive I'm not resisting when he directs I'm responsive I'm not hesitant When his word uh, speaks, I obey. I don't him haw around and say, well, I'm not sure if that's for me or not. I don't think that, that's cultural. No, I I read it and I I should be doing that and I obey. Which is the whole theme, one of the early themes in 1 Peter's obedience. And so we have the foreknowledge of God the Father laying the tracks. We have the sanctification of the Spirit and all of this that we might be, riding in this vehicle that we might be engaged within this wondrous provision of God. And we have a third description here. Now, I do have to take, unfortunately, I have to take some time. I don't want to take this time, but I have to. Uh, Most of your Calvinist friends are going to say, this is the divine order of how God plans salvation and how it happens in your life. God chose you ahead of time. Uh, He elected you from eternity past, who will get saved, who will not. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to make you capable of accepting him so that then you can receive the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ and become a Christian. Okay? And they use the order of these three in this verse to defend their position that the Holy Spirit doesn't sanctify you first, you can't get saved. This is one of the verses they will use. As you can see, I've already Taught you better <laughs> that we're not talking about talking at the train depot, we're talking about on the tracks in the train. You are already pilgrims, you have already received Christ, you are already called not to salvation but to obedience. So, do not so I have to negate that because it's out there and you're going to encounter it, and I would be. Derelict not to tell you that that's how they're going to abuse this verse. So we have the work of, of the Father that lays out our life. If you get on this track, if you surrender your will to my will at the train depot, and you get aboard to ride the rails of God's plan for all men, everywhere, if they would repent and surrender their will to his will. Now we're on the track equal to God's will which he knew from eternity past planned it out. This is my will if you want to ride this rail. Provide the vehicle because we can't I've I've walked on, on railroad rails it's hard. In fact it's kind of a cool thing we used to do as kids see if you could do this right? It's a balancing act. God provides the vehicle that's designed for the rails. You try to drive your car on railroad tracks. <laughs> you can't do it. Not for very long. Before you destroy your car, God has provided the correct vehicle, the power of the Holy Spirit to move us in our sainthood, in our sanctification, our set-apartness, in our righteousness toward godliness. You don't have to do it by yourself. You don't know, say, well, now I'm saved and now God's left me. No, Jesus Christ, what he's saying, John, I will not leave you orphans. I will send you the Spirit. He'll come alongside you. He'll be that vehicle that will carry you along if you simply will cooperate with him. And that's how everything you look at is don't resist him. Just walk with him. That's a cooperative statement. It's like he'll, he'll, he's capable. He knows. He can lead you. He can direct you. He can illuminate you. He can do all these things. If you'll just allow him, it is this continuous surrender. Just cooperate with him. This is our calling. Ride in the car. Cooperate with the Spirit. Stop trying to be unruly in there. Stop trying to get kicked off the train. Stop fighting the action of the train. You've all seen the little things where you're trying to run backwards on a train while you're still moving forward. You can't possibly run... It's futile. It's an exercise of self-destruction. And so we have this in the sanctification of the Spirit that we might move in obedience. And then we have the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We want to move forward with this, and then we're going to tie these together. This is the fuel. (laughs) The blood of Jesus Christ. This is what makes it all work. But I want you to notice two uses of the blood of Jesus Christ, especially the manner in which Peter talks about it. You might say, well, this is referring to salvation. I don't think so. It can be, but I don't think that's what Peter intended it to be used for, and I'll explain myself in a little bit. Having said that, now let me talk about the blood of Jesus Christ in reference to your salvation, okay? Because... Uh, it is valid to say that that's what he's talking about here in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, that you were elected for that. Uh, but the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ is for the atonement or the covering of sin. Okay? It is not the source of, of, it is not credited. We don't credit, and this is a weird statement, and I'm going to have to be real careful if I say it. It is not credited for sanctification. It is not credited uh, in, in that sense of atonement. It is not uh, credited with your resurrection and eternal life. Okay? The blood of Jesus Christ is there for your atonement of your sin, the washing away of sin. But that isn't the extent of salvation, is it? Salvation is much more than that. It's not just a washing you down, cleansing you of sin, that, and that has to be done over and over and over again. Uh, that's a concept that has pervaded many quote unquote Christian religions. That idea that I have to keep taking the blood of Jesus Christ to, to cleanse myself of sin, not only in, in, in the Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, uh, but even in the Reform, they just moved from transubstantiation to consubstantiation, but they still had the idea that you have to have the blood of Jesus Christ as a regular application. Um, and to keep that washing happening, the atonement. Uh, And so the atonement there is always related to sin, and that is always in the blood. Notice in Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sin. And so certainly that can be entailed here in this verse. I'm not completely discounting that, or I wouldn't be talking about it. And so there is the removal of sin at the beginning of the of the ride of your Christian life, where you enter the car, where you have your sins forgiven. And that is certainly by the blood of Jesus Christ. But when we talk about the power of the Christian life, it is not generally addressed to, not. I, know, I can't say it's 100% of the time, it's not generally addressed to the blood of Jesus Christ, but to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we talked about, at the end of John, our study about the ascension of Jesus Christ and the necessity of that in Christian living. And so we look to that and we, we pray in Jesus' name, we pray according to him as our advocate, and we don't pray according to the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the blood of Jesus Christ is not something that, that is, in terms of atonement, is not something that, while well, it lays the foundation for it. It's not something that is attributed to these other facets of our salvation. Does the blood establish a new covenant? Yes, but it is not entailing the entire covenant. It just establishes it. So we have a covenant between Abraham and God, and there's a, a bloodletting there. Um, but the bloodletting wasn't the covenant. The covenant itself was the promise of God. The blood of the was the sealing of the covenant. It was the, the completion of it. Now it's for sure, it's written in blood. All right? So we still have that concept, you know, I'm going to have best friends, and so I'm going to cut my hand. You cut your hand, and we're going to become blood brothers. You know, by mingling our blood together somehow. Uh, what is that? It means it's established. So the established. Shedding of blood establishes the covenant, but it shouldn't be con- understood as a replacement for or in lieu of. It's not the fullness of the covenant. For certainly Abraham had to do more than that. And so he walked with God, and God says, leave, the fam- leave here and go there, and he does. He obeys God. In obedience, God counted as righteousness. His faith he counted as righteousness. And so certainly the blood of Jesus Christ is referencing salvation, uh, and the atonement, the covering of sin. And that is something that does happen at salvation, but it also happens again and again in terms of how do you accomplish 1 John 1:9. 1, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just forgive us our sins that cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What is it that cleanses you of unrighteousness? It is the blood of Jesus Christ. So again, the blood is always for atoning for sin. It is cleansing you from sin. And that is certainly entailed here. And that is not just a one-time act of God. It is every time we fail in the sanctification, every time we are unruly inside the train, and we want to get it right, we need to confess that before God, seek the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ, have it applied, uh, and and confess. and, And he says he'll wash you white as snow, though your sins be as scarlet in Isaiah. Just simply come on the premise of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is one use of blood in Scripture. But there's another one. And I believe by the terminology he's using, specifically the word sprinkling, he's referring to the other use of blood. And that goes along with sanctification. And that is to set something apart for God's service. What did we find in the Old Testament consistently? Whenever we set something apart for service to God, it was sprinkled with blood, including the high priest himself. Hebrews again reiterates this, that this is how we cleanse everything, this is how we set apart and sanctify everything for temple service is it is sprinkled with, with the by the blood. So we would take that lamb sacrifice, we would dip this in the hyssop in there and we'd sprinkle it on things. And that sets that apart for divine service. And now this instrument that has been sprinkled with the blood is now not to be used for common purposes, but for worship purposes. This is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ in terms of the people on the train. How do we get further along in this path of obedience? It is by being set apart for service by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It not only atones for my sins, but it distinguishes me. I am not for common use. (laughs) I am now for divine use. And this is going to come out when Peter talks about and describes us as a peculiar people as a chosen nation. Uh, he's going to describe you, that you are distinct. This is in correlation with the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and this is the purpose of Peter. Peter's not really talking in this whole text about your salvation. He's really talking about your Christian life, that you're on the tracks of And praise God, those tracks were laid long ago, long before the world was even begun, and they will take you to their destination. Trust the tracks of the foreknowledge of God. You're riding in the car, the vehicle that God has provided, and glory to God, we can enjoy that power and that deliverance and that continuing work that that makes it so much easier for us to walk in righteousness and in truth that we'll just surrender ourselves and let the vehicle take us there instead of fighting it. And then we have the (laughs) uncommon distinction of being sprinkled with the blood of Christ, that we are set apart for uncommon worship. You are not here for common purposes. Your entire purpose has changed. That's what the sprinkling of blood was for as they dedicated the temple and dedicated the altar and dedicated the, the showbread, uh, the table showbread, and dedicated the altar of incense, and dedicated the temple itself, and dedicated the high priest, and dedicated each of the lower priests. Uh, they dedicated them by the sprinkling of blood. You are set apart for a different purpose. You are called for obedience, and that requires. A new identity. You are being completely set apart to something different. You're you've just been pulled off that little spinning wheel that's called the rat race that goes nowhere. You've been pulled off that little thing like the gerbil going running, 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 getting their exercise, but going nowhere. That's the world's ways. And it has no end, and, and rightly does. Does Solomon say, Ecclesiastes, that's just vanity. Vanity upon vanity upon vanity. You run in yours, and then you die, and your kids get in there, and they run in your place. They might not run as good as you ran. But in the end, all you've done is spun a wheel. Hasn't taken you anywhere. Hasn't accomplished anything. But by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are set apart to something different. That I no longer go to work, to earn a living, to... Come home and rest to go to work, turn a living to come home and rest. That that's not a cycle that is identifiable in my life. That's not, and because if you really think about why are people, and, and that's why people avoid that question. Why? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why? Well, I want to get farther ahead. Why? What does that mean? I had the discussion with some of the guys from U Turn for Christ up at the Bahamas, and I was like. Why are you doing this? Why, why, why do you want? You know, we we want to get more stuff. Get more stuff. Get more. You know, we had one young man who wanted to ask me how much everything costs. I owned. I said too much, too much, too much, and it keeps costing me. And while they were there, I I actually ended up having a tire break. So I was sitting there saying, listen, everything out here. I know I've got these tools and these vehicles and all thing. Do you realize that I have 32 tires I have to keep track of? 32 vehicle tires I have to keep track of. I have to replace them, check the mileage, all those things between these vehicles. These aren't a goal. Don't make this the goal of your life. Because it's an empty goal. Because the things of this world break down, and they'll just consume you. That's not the goal of your life. I want a bigger this, I want more of that. Why? because you living this, in this little circle. And you haven't stopped and thought, I've set apart to something different. Oh, yes, you are. You are set apart to worship. You are now an instrument of worship. You have been sanctified. You have been set apart. You have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ to service. And now, suddenly, work becomes a worshipful thing because I'm not there just to get into the treadmill of getting more stuff and bigger stuff and and more expensive stuff. As though somehow, you know, if I pay three times what you paid for the t shirt, it covers the same amount of space. But somehow, if you paid three times more than me, um, you're better than me? I don't get that, you know. I'm so glad we had the yard sale finally last week because I was running out of jeans. And I do all my shopping at the yard sale, so, um, it just, and that works, it works really well. But uh, we, we get that mentality of the world that somehow that's what we're here for, is to get more stuff and to get a little farther ahead. No, it's not. You are set apart to something more. You've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are on this train, but you are set apart for a destination, and you're just looking out this window, zoom, zoom, all this stuff everybody else is drodging for. They're just, you know, plodding along. You're zip right by, oh, that's not really that important. That's not that important either. I've got that destination. And all these other things just disappear as a priority. Now they can be used as a means towards that end of serving God. And so now I go to work with uh, several expectations. Number one, that I'm going to, of course, the number one reason you're at work is to make your boss money. Unless you work for the government, then I don't know what you're there for. Um, <clears throat> you're supposed to be there to serve the people, but where was I? So you're there as a, as a witness Number one, I'm there as a representative of Jesus Christ. Number two, I'm here to earn a living for me, for my family, and to have enough to share. And now, suddenly, the work it takes to provide for them is a worshipful activity. And it changes my entire mentality towards it now. I'm not there to get more stuff. I'm not there to get a little, to try to stay even with the Joneses next door. I'm not there for any of that. I'm there simply to earn a living, to care for my family, have enough to share, to care for other people, and and to build the kingdom of God. And that is my purpose. So I have taken functions that the world looks at and says, well, we do the same things. And we say, well, not really. The table of showbread. What was it there for? It was there to hold bread. Okay? Okay. There's a bread table. Could you have a bread table at your house? Sure. What will it do? Hold bread. But one does it in the temple, and one does it in your house. One's common, and one's holy. Because this bread is set apart for worship of God. You see, you can do the exact same things, but now you've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, and everything changes Now this table is precious, more precious than that, even if they're both made out of gold. That one's just overlaid in gold. You can make yours out of solid gold, and it could be more valuable in the world, but that one's more precious because it's being used in worship. Oh, you can take these activities of life and make them so much more valuable if you'll simply understand, I've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been set apart for worship. I've been set apart to something higher. I have this high calling to obedience. This isn't a low calling. This is a high calling. And so I want to use every resource I have available to me for his kingdom, to his glory, for worship. And so I'm going to approach the preparation of meals for my family very differently now because now it is part of our worship. Unless you get to the table and say, yuck, who made this? then you're not worshiping anymore. You're back to the little wheel grinding away because you can't worship in an unthankful spirit. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ identifies us for a different purpose, to a different end, to a different goal and aspiration. Even if we do the same activities, we are set apart for this. And this is elect for obedience by the Spirit. And for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are set apart. Yes, we are atoned for. I fully agree with that, and and I have no problem if you want to really focus in on that, but I see a lot more consistency if we take this secondary use of the sprinkling of blood as being set apart for service, for worship. Oh, that we would understand that you leave here worshiping while you drive. Not only in how you drive, but why you're driving, where you're driving, who you're driving. with All these things matter. Because now I want all this to worship my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want it all to glorify God. I want it all to keep me on the train car in a cooperative environment so the Spirit can make me more and more righteous in my experience. I want to keep... Flying down the tracks towards that destination of glorification. I want to stay on the tracks. And that means I have to keep this mentality. I am set apart to something more. Sanctification set apart as something different. The spring of the blood of Christ, you're set apart to something more. It is for God's glory. I'm here to glorify him. I'm here to worship. I'm here to serve his kingdom. And this is going to be brought out more and more. And this is wrapped up together. Now that we have a good understanding, I hope, of what we are called or chosen for obedience, that we can see uh, the greeting that Peter finally has. Now he's finally, finally identified who they are. He wants to send his greeting. We're going to be studying that next week. I can't get to it tonight. But we're going to hopefully walk out of here not confused, not confounded by this, the theologians and the manipulations they've done to this, but rather that we can have a confidence that, you know, God has chosen me to be obedient and sometimes that means he has to correct me. Because Hebrews tells us what? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines every son. So sometimes that's going to require some correction. Am I going to be responsive to that? Or am I going to try to jump the train? Or am I going to try to jump off this train? Because I don't want to be corrected. I don't want to be more righteous day by day. I, wanna, I don't want to be more like Jesus this week than I was last week. And you'll hear me pray that every now and then. And it should be a prayer every day. Lord, make me more like you today than I was yesterday. I want to be better at what you've set apart me for. You've set me apart for righteousness, for obedience, for worship. You've set me apart for your use. I believe with all my heart that that's what Peter's talking about. You are set apart. You've been chosen for obedience and for God's use. That's what is involved in being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Set apart for obedience and for worship. You're set apart for that use, for his employ, not for your own pursuits. That's who are the elect. Whoever gets on that train at the depot, when God says, all aboard, whoever gets on there, from now on, you get to travel on the tracks God knew and made, laid out, built, established, in a vehicle designed for those tracks to help you move you along so that you can obey him, And serve his kingdom. Oh, that we would have that as the aspirations of our life. That I'm more obedient and I'm serving his kingdom more and more. And worrying about this world less and less as I distance myself from who I used to be. Over this process called sanctification. This is Peter's introduction to the recipients of his letter. And because many of them probably had some Jewish background, they understood what sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ was about. To set you apart for service, for worship. And I'm sure Paul had that in mind when he said in Corinthians, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. That's the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ for his purpose. Now you are the temple. Now you are the instruments there. You are set apart. That's what you're chosen for. To obey and to serve. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word and for your work in our lives from eternity past even and in these days, that day that you came and crossed our path and yelled out all aboard and we had an opportunity to enter into your family and enter, and receive your salvation and and be filled with your Holy Spirit that we might walk in obedience and in service to you. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for that shed blood of Jesus Christ and the atonement that is there for the cleansing of sin but also for the the opportunity to be your servants precious and rare in your temple Lord help us to always cherish the sprinkling of your son's blood in our life to redefine us Lord what a privilege to serve your kingdom Lord, we do it inadequately and we mess up and we sin, and, but you are there to cleanse us. You are there to keep us moving. We thank you for your Spirit's work, not only encouraging us, but of, re, of, of helping us to know our sin, being convicted. Lord, help us to not resist him, not to be caught in the mundane of this world Lord, we thank you you've taken us off the treadmill and put us on a track to a wondrous destination we cannot praise your name enough and it's in that name jesus we do pray amen